we're going to continue our study on Colossians. Our study is called Established in Grace, and today is teaching number 11, which is the reconciliation of things on earth and things in heaven. And it comes out of Colossians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, which reads, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in the Son, and through him to reconcile all things to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And you were at one time strangers and enemies in your minds as expressed through your evil deeds. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through death to present you holy without blemish and blameless before him. So in the context of these verses, we learn several things. In chapter 1, verse 16, we learn Jesus is the creator of all things, which this means he put all things together. We looked at that last week. Colossians 1.17, Jesus is the sustainer of all things. This means he keeps all things together. We looked at that last week. And then in Colossians 1.19 through 20, Jesus is the reconciler of all things. And this means he brings all things together. We briefly talked about that last week, but I want to go more in depth into the reconciliation of all things. So what is reconciliation? Reconciliation is the act of God and Jesus where he reunites himself with humanity in a relationship, a love relationship, by removing the obstacle that once separated us. We're going to look at that more in depth in our next study. But in Colossians 1.22, talks a little bit about the reconciliation of God to humanity But now God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So that's in our next study that we'll look at. But today I want us to take a look at this other part of reconciliation in Colossians 1, 19 through 20, which reads, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in the Son, and through him to reconcile all things to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So we see that that the heart of God here is to reconcile all things. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in the Son, and through the Son to reconcile all things. And then Paul clarifies what he means by all things when he says, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And the reconciliation is going to come through the blood of Jesus on the cross, that what Jesus did on the cross brings all things together on earth and brings all things together in heaven. So in these verses, what we see is that reconciliation is the act of God in Jesus where God restores all things on earth and in heaven to their original condition. So we see two things about reconciliation. Reconciliation is when God reunites himself to humanity in a love relationship. Can read more about that in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. But this reconciliation is when God restores everything on earth and in the heavenlies and in heaven to their original condition. So let's begin with what does things on earth mean? We get a major view into what things on earth means when we look at Luke 2, 10 through 14. This is when the angel comes to the shepherds. 
And the angel is announcing the birth of Jesus, the birth of the Messiah. And here's what the angel says to the shepherd. But the angel said to them, that's the shepherds, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. So we see here that Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, was born in Bethlehem. We see the shepherds getting a personal visitation from the angel, announcing the birth of the Messiah, announcing the birth of the Christ. And we also see this announcement of peace on earth. So this leads us to ask a question, why would there need to be peace on earth? The answer is is easy. It's because there was no peace on earth. Then that leads us to another question of, well, why is there no peace on earth? Because even today, when we look at the world that we live in, if somebody were to ask the question, hey, is there peace on earth today? I think we would be hard-pressed to find someone who would say, yes, there's peace on earth today, because there's not peace on earth. Uh, From what we see in our headlines and our newspapers, uh, there's a lot of problems on earth today. There's a lot of pain on earth today. There's a lot of heartache on earth today. There's a lot of death. There's a lot of disease. There's a lot of destruction. Uh, There's terrorism on earth today. There's looting on earth that we've seen on our television. There's there's a lot of problems all over the world today. So there there is no peace on earth. Um, There may be pockets of peace here and there, but as a whole, there's no peace on earth. And just like we long for peace on earth, the people of biblical times had the same, same longing in their hearts as well. There's this deep longing in the heart of humanity for peace on earth, to to be able to live on earth without fear, to be able to live on earth free, full of joy and happiness, to not have to worry or be filled with anxiety about anything, but just to be able to, to enjoy living on this earth without having to wonder what's the next major headline going to be, what's the next disaster, what's the next hurricane. Uh, what's the next attack? There's always something that's going to dominate the headlines of the news that really isn't good news. So there's no peace on earth. But the Bible promises, the Jewish scripture promises, that a Christ is going to come, a Messiah, one appointed by God, who's going to establish peace on earth. And we read about this in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. You can also read about it in Isaiah 52, 7 through 10, Isaiah 55, 9, 55, 9 through 13, Isaiah 6, 1 through 22. But we're going to read Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. Talks about this peace that the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one of God is going to bring to earth. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. So we see that one is coming into the earth or into the human race, and he will be a ruler on earth. The government will be on his shoulders. He will will be a ruler. We looked at that last week in our study, that one of the 
identities or the descriptions of Jesus as the son is that of a ruler. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, that he will, be, he will have the responsibility of ruling the world. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So he's going to bring peace. When he, when he begins to rule, he will usher in peace on earth. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. This is what the angel was referring to. The angel had in mind, when the angel appeared to the shepherds, the angel had in mind Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, that the angel understood that this Messiah, this Christ today in Bethlehem, a Messiah, the, the Christ has been born to you, the one that's going to usher in peace on earth. He's here. He's been born. He's ready to usher in his kingdom of peace on earth. That's why you'll see in, in the ministry of Jesus, he'll talk about the gospel of the kingdom. The disciples talked about the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus talked about the gospel of the kingdom, meaning that, that Jesus was here as king to establish the kingdom of peace. So this prince of peace, he's going to establish peace on earth. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. So there's this idea of this kingdom, this gospel of this kingdom, this coming kingdom, this king who's going to come and he's going to establish peace on earth when his kingdom is set up on earth. We're still awaiting that kingdom to come and to be set up and it will happen and it will come. That's what the book of Revelation ultimately points us to. Now, when this prince of peace comes, the one whom the government will be on his shoulders, he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So we see this coming kingdom of peace, and we see this coming king who will rule over the kingdom, and when he rules, peace will flow throughout the entire world. Zechariah 9, 9 through 10 talks about this as well. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, this coming king. Your king comes to you. So we know this king's going to come from the family line of David. This king's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. He's going to restore the nation of Israel to its prominence. And from the nation of Israel, which is the most hated nation on the earth today, it will become the most loved nation on the earth when this kingdom comes, which is the great irony of grace that God takes the most hated nation on earth and makes it the most loved nation on earth. It's just the grace of God to humanity. And God understands the longing of humanity's heart is to have peace. His heart wants to have peace on earth as well. And God's going to do this. We saw in Isaiah that the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. He's passionate about peace coming to earth. But in Zechariah 9, 9 through 10, rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion, shout daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. Very, he's a very humble king. He's a very gentle king, lowly and riding on a donkey on, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. So what we see here is there's no, when, when this king reigns, there will be no war. War will cease and the battle bow will be broken. There will be no weapons of war. 
This coming king will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So when this king comes, and he's going to come from the family line of David, he's going to rule on David's throne, which means he's going to rule from Israel, from Jerusalem. And when he rules, peace is going to begin to break out all over the world. The angel comes to Mary and is familiar with all these prophecies, the two prophecies that we just read, as well as many other prophecies about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Christ to establish peace on earth. So the the angel who's very familiar with prophecy comes to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 30 through 33. says, but the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God, or God has graced you, Mary. You will conceive and give birth to a son. That's the son of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 through, through 9. The one coming to rule on David's throne. I'll show you this. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you're to call him Jesus, which means Savior, right? The Savior of the world. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. That's taken right out of Isaiah chapter 9, 6 through 9. This coming king who's going to rule from David's throne and establish a, a kingdom of peace. That child came. He was born in Bethlehem, and the night of his birth, the angels appear to the shepherds. That's what we read earlier in Luke 2, 10 through 14. Let's read that one more time with this understanding of the prophecies that we just read and the announcement that the angel made to Mary that she was going to give birth to this ruler coming into the earth who would establish peace all over the earth, a peace that would never end. The angel appears to the shepherds and says this, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Can you imagine you guys living back during this time and being very, very familiar with the verses that we just read out of Zechariah, very familiar with the verses that we just read out of Isaiah? And they were very familiar with other verses as well that pointed to the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Christ, who would establish peace on earth. Now, the people of Israel at this time were under the occupation of Rome. They had broken the law of Moses. All the curses that were to come upon the nation of Israel, if they rebelled against the law of Moses, um, they were experiencing these curses. And one of the curses that would come upon the nation of Israel, if they rebelled to the law of Moses, was that God would allow other nations to come in and to conquer Israel. And so Rome had come in and had conquered Israel and were now in control of Israel. And there was a lot of suppression among the people. They longed for peace. They long for the restoration of Israel. They long for the kingdom of the Messiah to come. They were longing for good news. And they hadn't heard anything from God for over 400 years. And all of a sudden, into this silence, into this dark period, in this period of despair, where there's still this longing in the heart for the Messiah, an angel appears to shepherds, to the lowliest of the lows. Not to, the, not to the religious leaders, but to the shepherds. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, shepherds. I bring you good news. The Messiah is here. The Christ is here. 
and the joy that would explode and burst from within the, within the hearts of people when they began to understand that the Messiah, the Christ, the one who's going to usher in the kingdom of God and bring peace was here. But we do notice that this joy that, w- that was to be for all people, if you just want to jot down John chapter 19, this joy turned to judgment in a hurry. And the judgment upon this child, the judgment upon the Christ, the judgment upon the Messiah, Jesus, eventually they called for his death. They called for his crucifixion. They said these words, crucify him, crucify him. He's not our king. And then you see Peter in in the early chapters of Acts communicating a message to the people of Israel that the one that you called for the crucifixion of is actually the Christ. He's actually the Messiah. His name is Jesus, and he's the one that can save you. And when the people who were listening, the Jewish people who were listening to Peter communicate this message that they had crucified their Messiah, remember in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, it says, and they were cut to the heart. Why were they cut to the heart? Because the one whom they needed to call on for salvation is the one they called on to be crucified. But Peter is extending grace to them. Hey, I know you called on his crucifixion, but now he's offering you his grace. He's offering you his forgiveness. And so the many people responded and began to believe and trust that Jesus was the Messiah. And all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And Peter proves that the name of the Lord, whom they need to call on to be saved, is, his name is Jesus. That's fascinating. As you understand the entire story of the Bible, when you get into Acts, it's just a continuation of the story. So, so before the arrival of Jesus, it was the coming of a Messiah who would establish peace on earth through the nation of Israel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John records his birth, his life, his death, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. And also it records the rejection of Jesus by the people of Israel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then when you move into Acts, you begin to see the proclamation of Peter that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. People of Israel, you had him crucified, but he's offering you grace. If you call upon his name, you will be saved. So Peter reaches deep into Hebrew scripture in the opening chapters of Acts to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the one the people need to call on to be saved. And he is going to return and he is going to usher in a kingdom of peace. And so, but before he does that, we see in scripture that the day of the Lord will will come before the peace that's going to be established. And so before this day of the Lord comes, all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved from the day of the Lord. And you can look, I think it's in Acts chapter one, verse 21. It could be 221, but Peter quotes the prophet Joel. All those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved from the day of the Lord. And then he proves that the name of the Lord is Jesus. You crucified him, but if you'll call upon his name, he's extending grace to you. You will be saved from this coming time. Anyway, that's part of the story of the Bible that really makes the Bible come to life as we understand this story uh, that God's unfolding in Scripture. But we're talking about the Messiah, the Christ, came to bring peace to the earth. The angels announced it. Um, We see in Acts 10.36, we see Peter say this. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. 
So part of the good news that Jesus came to bring was this idea or this belief or this truth that the Messiah is here. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. I want to usher in the kingdom of God, and I want to establish peace all over the earth. But Jesus wasn't going to force himself upon the people of Israel as their king. They they could reject him or they could receive him. So what we see in John chapter 19 is, is the people of Israel rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, rejecting Jesus as the king. But we also see in Scripture that one day Jesus is going to return. You can look at, I think it's Acts maybe 3.15, that when Jesus returns, that he, he will bring refreshing to the earth. He will bring peace to the earth. But this idea of peace coming to the earth, Ephesians 1, 9 through 10, Paul writes, And God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed or which he put into effect in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to bring all things in heaven and on earth together in Christ. So we see the same concept that Paul uses in Colossians 1, 19 and 20, 19 through 20. We see this same concept in Ephesians 1, 9 through 10, that it's God's good pleasure. It's God's heart. It's God's delight. It's God's desire to reconcile or to bring all things together in heaven and on earth in Christ to restore things to their peaceful condition. God desires strongly for peace to come to earth. And God has a plan for it. It's a grace plan. It's a plan of grace where through Christ, he's going to bring all things in heaven and on earth together. And so even though the world may look like it's falling apart and the earth may look like it's falling apart, we can't forget about that God has put this plan into effect in the person of Christ. And it's in effect now, and it's going, to, it's going to come together in the fullness of time. You see in Ephesians 1, 9 through 10, that which he purposed in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, that in the fullness of time, at the perfect time, God's going to bring all things in heaven and all things on earth together in Christ means he's going to reconcile all things in heaven and all things on earth together in Christ. Peace is coming to earth. We see this in in Revelation 21. There's no more tears. There's no more crying. There's no more pain. There's no more heartache. There's no more death. There's no no more mourning. What we get from all those descriptions is peace. Peace on earth is coming. That's our hope. And God's going to establish his kingdom of peace on earth. It's his good pleasure. It's his will. It's his desire. It's his delight. Uh, He's going to bring it all together in the person of Christ. That's what it means, the reconciliation of all things on earth. He's going to bring peace to this earth. He's going to bring all things together under the rulership of Jesus. And peace is going to flow from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. No more terrorism. No more wars, no more death, no more in in our city streets, no more chaos, no more chaos in our cities, no more chaos in our neighborhoods. It's going to be a a peaceful, and it's going to be on earth. You know, sometimes we think, hey, we're going to live forever in heaven. Heaven's the temporary home of those who've, who've gone to be with Christ. But one day we see that Christ is coming to earth, 
And he's going to bring all those with him who've gone before us. And that those who are still on earth at the coming of Christ, we will rise to meet them in the air. We will be with Christ forever on this new earth. And we will reign with Christ on this new earth. And we will live with Christ on this new earth. And we see in Revelation 21 that he says, I am the one who makes all things new. And so he's going to make all things new. All this will be, all that we're experiencing now will be a distant memory one day. Better days are coming. Uh, I don't even want to say better days. It's, it's new days. It's amazing days. It's awesome days. It's peaceful days. They're coming. So we've looked briefly at what does God reconciling all things on earth mean. But now let's look at what does things in heaven mean? The reconciliation of things in heaven. Now remember, we're studying Colossians 1, 19 through 20 which reads, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in the Son, and through the Son to reconcile or bring together all things to himself by making peace. He's going to bring peace to earth by making peace through the blood of the cross, by making peace through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So what we see here is the power of the cross of Jesus. We see the power of the blood of Jesus. Remember the song, the hymns we used to sing? There's power, there's power, there's power in the blood. There is. The blood of Christ is so powerful that it brings together, it reconciles all things on earth and all things in heaven. Now, let's take a look at what this reconciliation of all things in heaven means. So, if within the heavenly realms... There needs to be reconciliation. It's just like on earth. If, if there needs to be reconciliation on earth, if peace needs to be brought to earth, we see in Colossians 1, 19 through 20, he says, to reconcile all things to himself by making peace through the blood of the cross, whether on earth or things in heaven. So peace needs to come into the heavenlies is what we see in this verse. So if peace needs to come into the heavenlies, what that means for us is there's no peace in the heavenlies right now. And I want to distinguish between heaven and the heavenlies. We're going to look at the heavenlies here in a moment because God is in heaven. There is peace in heaven, the dwelling place of God. But Paul talks about the heavenly places. When we think about the heavens, we think about the stars in the sky, the moon. We think about heaven which is the dwelling place of God. I think in between heaven, the dwelling place of God, and the heavens where we see the moon and the stars and the planets, there's another heaven, a heavenly place or a heavenly dwelling or heavenly environment or atmosphere, which is where Satan is. It's where the demons are. It's, it's where angels are as well. And we're going we're gonna to look at this in just a minute. And there's no peace there. There's conflict uh, between the demons of Satan and the angels of God. All right, let's take a look in Scripture with that. Let's look at what is the reconciliation of all things in heaven. Now, Revelation 12, 7 through 9 speaks about a war that broke out in heaven. It says, then a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels, that's Michael the archangel, that's, that's the good angel, Michael and his angels, so there is Michael and his angels. How many angels? We don't know. All right. Fought against the dragon, that's Satan, and the dragon's angels. 
So we see this cosmic war going on, these heavenly battles going on, probably in what would be called the second heaven. The first heaven is the stars in the sky. The third heaven would be the dwelling place of, of God. And then the second heaven would be what we're seeing right here where the angel, angels, Michael the archangel and his angels and Gabriel and, and then the angels of Satan, the fallen angels. So a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But the dragon was not strong enough and no longer was, it, was any place found in heaven for him and his angels. And the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So the question is this, in the context of Revelation, when did this heavenly war break out between Michael the archangel and his angels and Satan and his angels? And I'm not going to go into that. There's three possibilities. This war broke out before the creation of the world, which I would probably go with that one. Then Satan was hurled to the earth, but still has access to the second heaven that we talked about earlier. The war broke out before the creation of the world, which means that if what's being referred to here in Revelation 12, it's, if it's an angelic war that broke out before the creation of the world and Satan was thrown down to earth, then before Adam and Eve were ever created, before Eve was ever tempted and Adam rebelled against God in the garden that this war had already broken out. So there, there was already a, a cosmic war going on prior to the creation of the earth. All right. So when did this war break out? Well, option number one, this war broke out before the creation of the world. This war referring back into Revelation 12 broke out before the crucifixion of Jesus or the war broke out at the culmination of time or the end of time. And John's just getting a, a picture or revelation of this. But here's what we do know, regardless of where this fits into context, as far as when did this war break out, here's what we do know. There has been an ongoing angelic and satanic war in the heavenlies that still exists today. All right, let's look at Jude 6 for a little bit more information on this angelic war going on between the angels of God and the angels of Satan, who himself is a fallen angel. Jude 6 puts it like this, but even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil, that's Satan, that's the serpent, that's the dragon, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare himself to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you without getting into the context of that verse, it's, I just want us to see that within the heavenly realms, there was a disputing going on. There was a conflict going on between the devil and the archangel uh, Michael. So we see conflict in the heavenly realms is, is the point. Uh, Daniel 10, 10 through 14, we're, we're going to look at this as well, this cosmic conflict going on between the angels of God and the angels of Satan, who himself again is an angel. Look in Daniel 10, 10 through 14. This is Daniel talking. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He, this is this angel that's appearing to Daniel. Daniel doesn't identify who this angel is or who this 
this hand that touched him is. It could possibly be Gabriel who appeared to Daniel in Daniel 8, 15 through 26, or Daniel 9, 21 through 27. Possibly Gabriel, but I would have a suspicion that since Daniel had already seen Gabriel, this seems to be somebody Daniel's not recognizing here. But he doesn't identify. We, we, it, it very well could be Gabriel. But Daniel says, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And the one who touched me and set me to trembling said to me, Daniel, you are highly esteemed. Consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up for I have been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. And then he continued, Daniel, do not be afraid. And here's what I want us to see. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. This is a heavenly resistance here. This is a resistant effort where the, the demons of Satan... And here is the prince of Persia, Persia's modern-day Iran, all right? That there seems to be, as we read through these scriptures, we're going to see there seems to be spiritual forces that are over the geographical nations of the world. So that when God divided the nations up in, uh, in Genesis at the Tower of Babel, there seems to be within the, the heavenly atmosphere a, a spiritual kingdom of angels, good and bad, who are fighting for the protection of or the destruction of nations. All right. That's the idea of the reconciliation of things in heaven, that God's going to put an end to this cosmic conflict. This cosmic conflict between good angels and bad angels will come to an end. And we do see that in Revelation when the angels and his demons are thrown into the lake of fire. I think that's Revelation 20, maybe. But let's read on with Daniel. So the angel said to Daniel, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding. The question here is the understanding of what? Well, Daniel was from the nation of Israel. And we see back in Daniel chapter 9 that Daniel was very familiar with Bible prophecy or was very familiar with Jewish prophecy, with the Jewish scriptures. So that Daniel knew that from Jeremiah chapter 29, that Babylon was going to come in under Nebuchadnezzar and was going to come in and destroy Jerusalem and take over the nation of Israel. All right. In Bible prophecy of Daniel chapter 29, God reveals through Jeremiah that once Babylon comes in and takes over the nation of Israel and plummets Israel and takes the people of Israel into captivity, and remember Daniel had been taken into captivity under Nebuchadnezzar when he was a teenager, Daniel realized in chapter 9 that he had been in Babylon for 69 years or so. And he knew that Bible prophecy of Jeremiah 29 said that they would be in captivity 
for 70 years. So Daniel begins to pray. Daniel even says in Daniel chapter 9 that Daniel was reading the book of Jeremiah. And as Daniel was reading the book of Jeremiah, he begins to read that they would be in captivity for 70 years. And he's like, well, we're almost at 70 years. What's going to happen with Israel after these 70 years? Because within the context of Jeremiah 29, we're very familiar with the verse, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to give you a hope and plans to give you a future. And typically that's, you know, we use that verse for graduating seniors. Most people don't have any clue of what that verse is about, where it sits in the context. And though it may be applicable for graduating, graduating seniors, I know it is applicable for the nation of Israel. That we do know. So Daniel begins to pray. What's going to happen with Israel after the 70 years of captivity? Because God, I'm reading in the book of Jeremiah right now, and I see that we're going to be in captivity for 70 years. And I see that you have a hope and you have a future for the nation of Israel. God, what's this hope? God, what's this future? Could you give me the unveiling and the revelation of the future for Israel? And God comes through or sends an angel, Gabriel, and he he says, Israel has 490 years left. From the decree given to go and rebuild Israel until the the anointed one comes, until the Messiah comes, there's going to be 483 years. So you can actually start the prophetic time clock that the time that was given for Israel to go back and rebuild, for the people of Israel to leave Babylon, go back to Israel and rebuild the city and the temple, that you could start the prophetic time clock and you could let it tick until it reached 483 years. And at the end of 483 years, the Messiah would show up. And then there would be one final seven years, which together would be 490 years. And that 490 years, the 70 times seven that we see in Daniel, is broken up into two parts. So the 490 years consist of first 483 years, and secondly consist of seven years. The seven years is what the book of Revelation unfolds for us. The 483 years was up until the point Jesus was cut off. And what we're in now is what's called the age of the church, or this this period of the church age that that was a mystery that nobody saw coming. You can't go back into Jeremiah and discover that the law would be abolished. You can't go back into Isaiah and discover that God was going to create a new humanity, a new race of people, a spiritual group of people called the church. Paul calls it a mystery in Ephesians chapter three. All right. We're in what's called this age of the, this mystery age. This time that nobody saw coming, there's nowhere in scripture that you saw a separation of the 483 years and the seven years. To the people of Israel, it was just 490 years, all right, based in two different parts. So we're still in this mystery age that no one knew about. Again, you can read that in Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 2, really the entire book of Ephesians explains the coming of the church. That was a mystery that no one knew about. All right. What I want us to see here is that there is a resistance in the heavenlies against the nation of Israel. Why is there a resistance in the heavenlies against the nation of Israel? Because Satan knows that through the nation of Israel, the Messiah is coming. 
the Christ is coming. His ultimate foe is coming. The one who's going to crush his head is coming. Remember, Satan was around in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God said, hey, a woman will give birth to a son. You will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. That idea of a crushed head of a serpent is death, a death blow. So Satan knows that through the nation of Israel, the one who's coming to crush his head will come. So he fights against the nation before the coming of Jesus. At the birth of Jesus, he moves into King Herod to get King Herod to kill all the children two years old and under in Jerusalem. So he's trying to take out the Messiah. He plots against Jesus during the life of Jesus. He tempts Jesus during the life of Jesus. He, through Peter, says, you will not go to the cross. He's trying to prevent Jesus from going to the cross because Satan knows that the power of grace exhibited at the cross of Jesus is the power that totally disarms him. He did not want Jesus to go to the cross. That's the blow. Because he knew Bible prophecy was Jesus was going to rise from the dead and defeat Satan and defeat death, two of the great enemies of the human race. So we have Satan moving against the nation of Israel to destroy the nation so that the Messiah wouldn't be born. But God in his grace plan moves for Jesus to be born in the nation of Israel to fulfill prophecy. At the moment of the birth of Jesus, King Herod tries to take his life. The angel, here's the, this cosmic war going on. The angel comes to Joseph in a dream and says, go to Egypt. Satan's going to try to kill the son, or King Herod's going to try to kill the son, and I think it was Satan through King Herod. So Joseph takes Mary, and they go to Egypt until it's safe for them to return. And when Jesus returns, it's this story still unfolding. Satan begins to tempt Jesus many times during his life. We see a record of that uh, in, I think it's Matthew chapter 4, maybe, or Luke chapter 4. But either way, it says, and Satan left Jesus for a more opportune time. So there was these ongoing temptations to try to trip Jesus up and to keep him from going to the cross. And then he also, remember, moved into Judas. And he told Judas to betray Jesus. And Judas was trying to prevent Jesus from going to the cross as well. Judas thought, if I can put Jesus in the right situation, remember, Satan is moving through Judas, then Jesus is going to reveal who he really is to the nation of Israel, to the nation of Rome. He's going to identify himself to the nation of Israel as the king, and he's going to usher in the kingdom. Satan did not want Jesus going to the cross. He did not want grace coming to the human race. So there's this cosmic battle to prevent the gospel of grace, the cross, the blood of Christ, which is the power that will defeat and has defeated Satan. So let's look at some more of this cosmic battle. It says, out of Daniel, we're still reading, the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days, meaning Daniel had prayed and this spiritual um, angelic called the prince of the Persian kingdom, that's modern day Iran, resisted me 21 days, resisted the one who's communicating to Daniel, the angel communicating to Daniel in this vision in Daniel 12. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, that's Michael the archangel of Jude 6. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. 
So this one who's appearing to Daniel in Daniel 12, this angel was detained by the prince of Persia and Michael the archangel came to help him and it took 21 days for them to break through this cosmic battle for this angel to get to Daniel and to give him the information he had prayed about to explain what was going to happen. It says, now I have come to you, Daniel, to explain to you what will happen to your people, that's the nation of Israel, in the future. For the vision concerns a time yet to come, which ultimately we see unveiled in the book of Revelation. So more of this cosmic battle in Daniel 10, 20 through 21. So this, this angel who's appeared to Daniel says, and so he said, this angel and to Daniel, do you know why I've come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. This is angelic cosmic fighting going on, conflict. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. So this is the idea of the geography of the world has spiritual entities who have been assigned evidently by Satan to oversee and to cause harm and conflict in this world that God's created to ultimately bring it down. And, and we see a lot of this going on all over the world today, but Jesus is going to bring peace on earth. He's going to bring peace on earth. So this conflict going on in heaven is to cause conflict on earth. All right. When I go, the prince of Greece will come, but first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. So the prince of Israel is Michael the archangel. He's the one who God's assigned to take care of the nation of Israel, and he has satanic, demonic forces battling them over the nation of Israel. That's still in existence today. There's still these angelic forces that hate Israel and wants to bring Israel to its knees and wipe Israel from the face of the earth because Jesus is going to return, and he's going to set up his kingdom through Israel. Look at Daniel 12, 1. It says, at that time, Michael, this is the archangel, the great prince who protects your people. That's the nation of Israel. So I, I just want us to, to get a picture and a glimpse into this cosmic warfare, these cosmic battles, this cosmic conflict going on to bring disruption to the earth, to bring a lack of peace to the earth, to bring problems to the earth. And we see that. We see that every day. We see it on our headlines and our headlines and social media. It's every day. And, uh, but one day Jesus is going to return and he's going to bring all things together and he's going to establish peace. Look at Ephesians 2. Paul talks about this. He says, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That's the unbelievers. So the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that has to be Satan, the dragon. And then he has all of his angelic forces who are strategically placed geographically all over the earth for him to take over, for him to cause chaos and him to cause problems, ultimately to bring God down. That, that's his ultimate goal and to prevent his own demise. Look what Paul says in Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. That's the gospel there. What is the mighty power of the Lord, which is we find strength in? the gospel of the cross, the gospel of the blood of Christ, the gospel of grace. That's where our power is to fight this enemy. And you got enemies. You guys can check out, if you like, 
on my podcast, I talk about uh, the armor of grace, and I talk about that the armor is the gospel of grace. That's the armor we, we use to fight these battles against Satan. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. That's the armor of grace. That's the gospel. That's the blood of Christ that Satan tried his best to prevent from coming. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil, where? In the heavenly realms. There is a heavenly conflict. There is a heavenly organization of satanic forces that are against you and that are against me and that against this world and ultimately against God. All right. Look at Colossians 2, 13 through 15. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. This is the gospel we're seeing. This is grace that we're seeing here. When God took our sins and nailed them to the cross with Jesus, that's the grace of God to us. Look what happened when our sins were nailed to the cross and our sins were forgiven. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities. Where are the powers and authorities that war against us and battle against us? Where is their power disarmed? At the cross. The last thing that Satan wants believers to come to an understanding of is what happened at the cross. What happened? All their sins have been forgiven. They have been made righteous. They have been reconciled to God. God's not counting us our sins against us. Satan doesn't want believers to come to a full understanding of the gospel of grace. That's why Satan works so hard to keep believers from coming to a full understanding of the gospel. Because Satan knows it's the gospel that disarms him and renders him powerless. That's why Paul says, take your stand in the Lord's mighty power, in the Lord's strength. What is that power? Well, it's the gospel of grace. Romans chapter 1, the gospel is the power of God. It's the helmet of salvation that we put on. We, we put on the gospel in our minds. We, we think gospel truth in our mind because Satan is the accuser. He's the liar who comes to us. And we, we fight Satan with the gospel. That's how he's defeated. That's how we, dis, we disarm him when he seeks to attack us. So at the cross, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphant over them by the cross. That's the same way you and I triumph over Satan today. We understand what happened at the cross and we appropriate it. We believe it to be true. Ephesians 1, 18 through 23. Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his saints, his incomparable great power. What's this power? It's the power of the gospel. It's the power of the gospel of grace. It's the power of the cross. It's the power of the love of Christ for us. That defeated Satan, and it still defeats Satan today. That power is the same. 
So the, he's comparing the power of the gospel to the power that raised Jesus from the dead. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule, all authority, all power, and dominions. So that's the power we have accessible that we access is the power of the gospel. We stand in the power of the gospel when, when Satan tries to attack us. Look what Paul says in Ephesians 3, 10 through 12. It says, God's intent was that now, now back during the time when Paul wrote Ephesians, and now today, this age of grace that we live in, this mystery time of the church that Paul refers to in Ephesians 3, His intent was that now through the church, that's the family of God, that's the family of grace, it's the family of people who place their faith in Jesus. God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. Now, what's the manifold wisdom? You've got to go back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 8, and really 3 through 8. The manifold wisdom of God is the gospel of grace. The manifold wisdom of God is the grace that he's lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. That's Ephesians chapter 1, verse 8. So through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, which is grace that he's lavished upon us in Christ, that's brought complete forgiveness and that we're holy and we're blameless before God and we're sons and daughters of God. There's so much to the manifold wisdom of God that Paul's already spoken and written about in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2 and up to this point in Ephesians 3. But through the church, this manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. So the spiritual family of God on earth that's operating in the grace has been educated about the gospel of grace, who has experienced grace in their lives, who are expressing grace to one another that Satan and his demons are somehow watching this in the heavenly realms. We're making known to them the power of the cross. We're making known to them the power of the blood of Christ through the church. The church making known the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms is according, in Ephesians we see, is according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord and in In him and through faith in him, we now approach God with freedom and confidence. And then finally in Romans 16, 20, it says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Satan will be crushed under the feet of Jesus. He's already been disarmed at the cross. And when we live in the power of the cross, He's disarmed in our lives as well. He has no power over us when we, when we are educated about the gospel, we experience the gospel, we express the gospel to one another in our relationships. He's disarmed in our relationships. But one day, the God of peace is going to crush Satan under your feet. Until that day comes, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So I hope this gives a little bit more of a picture about the reconciliation of all things on earth and the reconciliation of all things in heaven, that the chaos that we see on earth is one day going to be gone 
And the conflict in the heavenlies one day in the heavenlies is one day going to be gone. And in Revelation, we see that God makes everything new in Jesus, a new earth and a new heaven, no conflict in heaven, no chaos on earth, and the peace of God will extend all over the earth. And the one who's going to bring that peace to earth is the Lord Jesus Christ. And until the Lord Jesus Christ comes, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ will be with you.